1: I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. Today, I interview a West Hollywood council member and frontrunner for the L.A. County Board of Supervisors, Lindsay Horvath, Next, my guest is Dr. Khachik Muradian, professor in Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African studies at Columbia University. Lindsay Horvath is the longest consecutively serving mayor of West Hollywood, leading the city in 2020 and 2021. She was elected to the West Hollywood City Council in 2015 and previously served from 2009 to 2011. Councilmember Horvath has a long history of civic and social justice advocacy. She's widely known for her work advancing the rights of women and LGBTQ plus people, as well as creating age-friendly, sustainable communities. She is now the front-runner candidate for the LA County Board of Supervisors, endorsed by Supervisor Sheila Kuehl, who is retiring. Councilmember Horvath's mayor duties ended uh, in November of last year, uh, city of West Hollywood, like a lot of other cities, uh, rotates who is in the mayor's seat. So she's now council member uh, Horvath in West Hollywood. Thank you for joining me this morning on The Blunt Post with Vic. How are you today?
0: I'm doing well. How are you?
1: I am great. Probably not as great as you since uh, we'll get into this, but you are now officially a frontrunner for for uh, LA County Supervisors Race, which will happen later this year, the the election. So congrats on that.
0: Thank you very much. I commit to our entire district that I will be the hardest working person in this race, but it is always nice to have good news.
1: I don't doubt that as I've, you know, full disclosure, I've known you a long time and I know that to be true, (laughs) so I can attest to it. Um, You know, I want to go back and sort of ask you about, um, and this is just curiosity, with so much is happening, I feel like, well, it's something we can, we've said for for the longest time that there's a lot of uncertainty in the air, there's a lot of transitioning, you know, transitional period happening with uh, COVID is, gets, you know, bad and you know, a little bit lighter, and then it gets bad again, and all of that. But not just that, just politically, also, we're going through so many different things, it's hard to really assess where we are. From your perspective, how would you describe the current state of affairs in our nation, in our state of California, and then, of course, uh, LA County?
0: Oh, my gosh. How much time do we have? Um, you know, it's I would just say, you know, everybody's really going through something right now. You know, everybody is facing an incredibly challenging time, whether you have experienced personally the devastating impacts of COVID on your your own or your loved of one's health, uh, whether you have had to close your business, whether you've lost your job, whether you're just really dealing with uh, the, the emotional and psychological impacts of isolation and loneliness. You know, everyone is really going through something right now. And I think that's nationally. I think that's right here at home. And so what we see, you know, at, at out in the world, in terms of politics, uh, you know, people want change, but they also just want to know that things are going to get better. They, they want to have hope. They want to have the confidence that they're going to be able to return to some semblance of a normal life, that there will be an end to, you know, open up, shut down, masks on, not anymore, just kidding, but they're back on. You know, people want to know that they can trust the messages that they're hearing. They wanna just live a normal life, be able to take care of themselves and their families. And I think that's why people are really checking in at the local level and why I'm so passionate about being a local government official, serving at the local level, keeping those connections local, and really doing the work of of local government, because that's what matters most to people. It's nonpartisan. People are sick. In politics, in in many ways, they don't. You know, they feel like we can't agree on anything, and so um, local local government is a place where maybe we can start bringing people together, where we can, you know, just reach out to our neighbor again, take care of, you know, yes, our own backyard, and make sure that we're taking care of ourselves.
1: Yeah, well said. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of local governments, uh, you are the long- longest consecutively serving mayor of West Hollywood. Uh, You know, you've led the city uh, in 2020, 2021 through the worst of this crisis. Uh, You were elected to City of West Hollywood City Council in 2015, uh, and previously uh, you had served from 2009 to 2011. What has your experience been uh, serving in a city that to some may seem small, But it's a very pivotal city, you know, nationally, a lot of people look at West Hollywood, it's a trendsetter, it is a a trailblazer in so many ways, then one, what have these last 15, 16, 17 years looked like?
0: Yeah, it's amazing to think how many years I've already been in office and uh, the experience that comes with it. And yet uh, to be under 40, and um, I think I come with that right balance of, you know, a lot of experience, seeing what uh, what can happen when you do things right in a city, and also um, hopefully translating that to a level that has broader impact for people uh, throughout Los Angeles County. Um you know, West Hollywood has uh, had a national and international spotlight on it for so many reasons. Yes, people know us uh, for uh, the ways that we have always been committed to protecting and fighting for our LGBTQ plus community. Now over 40%, nearing 50% of our population in the city. Um, no surprise there. Uh, we ha- we were the first city to provide domestic partnerships. We were at the forefront of the AIDS and HIV crisis. We uh, took care of people. It's just who we've always been. Um, Even now we see LA County talking about how they balance having both social services while also making sure they sufficiently invest in public safety. That's something we've always done as a community. We have always supported our social safety net while also taking care of community safety, making sure people feel safe in their community, especially um, as a community that has LGBT people, that has older adults, that has a high Jew Jewish population and concentration. We know that hate crimes have ticked up and that um, people are feeling unsafe uh, for those reasons. And so as a, as a community, we have consistently fought back on these issues. We've fought to protect people and we'll continue to do as a city. And, and I believe that's really what the region is also looking for. You know, we've been at the forefront progressive policies, but they're just practical solutions to the the experiences that people are facing in their lives. In our community, we're over 80% renters. So it's no surprise that we have been at the forefront of renters protections and uh, thinking like renters in our community to, to think about how we make sure people who are living their entire life as renters, not just sort of that transitional stage that many people think about in their early life. Um, many We have many lifelong renters in our city, and so making sure they have a good quality of life, that they live in buildings that are sustainable and retrofitted and um, able to uh, be places where they can safely age in place, um, you know, those, those are things that we're thinking about in terms of our existing housing stock as we look squarely in the face. A housing Housing crisis, And, you know, a, a homelessness crisis. We don't want anybody slipping into homelessness. We, we fight against that. And in fact, um, year after year, we have had success getting people off the streets and into housing services or both. In our community um, to the tune of 80% success rate year after year. So we know firsthand what the issues are that people have faced and are facing. We have taken them head on. We have learned how to be successful, use our resources wisely. We also have, you know, even through the pandemic, a triple-A bond rating and have been very um, fiscally responsible. With taxpayer dollars, providing you know more green space and expanding our local parks, um, you know, doing all the things that people expect a, a local government to do for them, um, but being in a city that is also national spotlight for all of the good reasons that we have been, um, it, it's it's an amazing place. I, I feel it's been the the gift of a lifetime to be able to be of service to my community, and um and and I've really been honored uh, to have that opportunity.
1: I agree. I think. The word I I think about or I thought about when you were talking is audacious in a good way. West Hollywood has been audacious when other cities have been very uh, timid and wanted to see what's going to happen with the trailblazer. But West Hollywood has really put itself out there, whether it was abandoning the sale of fur or one time plastic use and such. And I have to say this for those listening uh, in 2003, West Hollywood doesn't have a significant Armenian-American community. It didn't in 2003, and it still doesn't. However, the city of West Hollywood recognized the Armenian genocide in 2003. And uh, you have marched with us uh, during the com- uh, commemoration of the Armenian genocide on April 24th. And it was through your co-sponsorship with uh, Council Member Sepi Shine earlier last year that the city of West Hollywood officially and formally recognized the independent of Artsakh. So there are so many things that make West Hollywood a very unique city in a really, really good way. So I'm very grateful for that. I wanna go into your sort of next, you know, what, you know, the LA County Board of Supervisors, which is your candidate for it, you're a front runner, and it's going to happen later this year during the election. A lot of people don't know how powerful this body is and uh, the kind of budget they have, the, the kind of immense responsibility they have. In some ways, they are more powerful than our uh, state senators and assembly members of due to the many areas that they have to oversee, etc. And uh, you are essentially running for uh, the seat of the beloved Supervisor Sheila Kuehl, who also has endorsed you already for for that? So that's a that's a great treat. Why you know you are you know very young? You've been very successful already. So why L.A. County supervisors as the next step in your public service?
0: Well, I think that we are facing a very urgent moment in L.A. County. Uh, As I, as I mentioned, people are looking squarely in the face in their own communities, the devastating impact of homelessness and the affordable housing crisis and housing crisis overall. Um, They're looking at, you know, how do we keep our communities safe and um, have a good quality of life while we see, you know, costs and the the cost of living rising. Um, We've taxed ourselves to improve things like our transportation infrastructure, but, haven't always seen the results of that in our own neighborhoods. And with uh, the effects of COVID-19 shutting down businesses and putting people out of work, people are looking at how am I going to get my business back open and running? How am I going to get back to a job that affords myself and my family a good quality of life. Um, these are the things that I face as a council member, that I faced as a mayor during during COVID. Um, and, um, and, you know, we were recognized during my tenure of leadership as being the most business-friendly city in the county for the work that we did to support our businesses, while also raising the minimum wage and implementing worker protections and safe working conditions for people who are on the front lines doing work in the face of great risk. Um, these things do not need to be mutually exclusive. You can do both. You can do it both successfully and do them well uh, and serve all of all of the constituents of our community because I believe that recovery uh, must include everyone. And so uh, while I didn't know that LA County Board of Supervisors was gonna be in my future, I think facing this moment and being asked by so many people who are now part of my very strong and diverse coalition of support um, to seriously consider getting in this race. It started with questions and nudging and after several months of saying no, um, people got a little louder and a little sterner with me. And you know, the truth is, um, I really appreciate it because I see how people want the experience of a local leader um, at the county board. We have a tremendous amount of experience and talent on the board already, um, but what we really need is a local perspective, somebody who um, has done you know years of work in community is connected at the local level with local leaders and groups and constituencies throughout the county you know and represents a diverse coalition of people that's reflective of the district and so um, you know i look at the people who are counting on me and calling on me to run for this office um, i feel a sense of responsibility but i also am very excited about this moment and all that it presents us um, many people really don't know just how impactful la county is on their daily life. But you know, uh, LA County is over 10, 10 million people, 88 cities. We um, in LA County have over 100,000 employees serving LA County on any given day. We have um, as residents of LA County, we, we know that it's about a $34 billion annual budget. That's so many opportunities and a lot of power to invest in creating meaningful change in things that touch everybody's lives from homelessness and housing, mental health, public safety, um, you know, our criminal justice system, uh, foster care, you name it. Our entire social safety net is really wrapped up in the work of the county. So I'm eager to take the experience I have, plus the energy perspective and just really problem solving uh, and bringing people together uh, record that I have um, to bear for, for the residents of LA County.
1: This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with council member Lindsay Horvath, who is also running for the LA County Board of Supervisors. Well. Wow. Even for, for me, who knows to a degree what telecount supervisors do, just hearing that, that's just so overwhelming. And you do have a very comprehensive, ambitious plan um, and priorities. Uh, one of them, of course, is uh, dealing with the unhoused, which has been sort of on almost everyone's agenda, on top of their agenda. It's a very complicated, it's a very... Um, Intertwined topic. It's not. There are no easy solutions. It's not necessarily just a California issue or LA County issue. It's really a nationwide issue, and it goes into other issues. And I and I, it reminds me to also commend you for City of West Hollywood's recent increase in minimum wage because I think that uh, our unhoused challenge. Uh, is related to that is, is cost of living as well as income throughout the nation. So uh, West Hollywood really did the, this great thing to, um, to increase the minimum wage uh, as it did. So I'll stop talking. I just want to hear your ideas about um, the unhoused.
0: So, um, you know, I think this issue, uh, like, like several others, you know, we have so many really smart people working hard to try and make a difference in very broken systems. And when we look at um, our unhoused residents in LA County, we cannot be asking them to navigate three and four different departments in a county as big as I described and expect them to have successful and meaningful results on their own. We need to help these people who are living in our community and bring support directly to them. We can't expect to create offices that are, you know, out of uh, walking distance and require, you know, long transportation routes to, to, we can't just, we can't expect them to get there on their own. We have to meet them where they are. And that's exactly what Uh, we have done in our community. We have street teams that go out and meet people every day of the week. We employ people who themselves are formerly unhoused, have struggled with addiction and uh, mental health uh, issues. Um, They have um, really seen the worst of it and come out on the other side. And so they are trusted ambassadors um of, of these resources. Uh, they're able to go out and build trust with folks in the community and uh help them uh you know first of all know what is available to them and then trust uh you know getting off the streets and and a new way of life and uh we provide transportation, we connect people with mental health uh, services, with addiction and recovery services, um, whatever it is they need. And on the safety side for those um Issues that come up related to our unhoused residents, we lead with um, clinically trained social workers who partner with our sheriff's department to go out um, and they lead on these calls. They are able to d- diagnose people who are struggling with mental illness or, or other issues um, and get them into services and care rather than being, uh, you know, jailed just simply for being unhoused um, and. This is, I think, how most people would like to see this issue handled, um, but I know that people are increasingly frustrated. And let's be clear, when people are a, a, a risk to themselves or others, we treat that very seriously and uh, and for people who um, are, are experiencing um Mental health issues or other issues, we we want them to have the services and support immediately that they need. So um, I, I think that's really what we need to do is invest in those direct solutions. We uh, we work with community partners that already contract la county in our community so i know that this model that we have is scalable because we're already using organizations that work with la county we're working with the sheriff's department which of course is under the jurisdiction of la county supervisors um, and we also um, need to build out our department of mental health and the supportive services that will actually provide the resources and support that people need we need to build housing up all kinds uh, but especially housing that is affordable for people um but we also know that there are housing options that people uh that already exist that we can get people into um with a little bit of creativity ingenuity and just willingness to to do something different and you know whether it's converting um an an old hospital or an old motel into a, a livable uh uh place where people can get off the streets and, and and maybe even be provided services to. We have facilities throughout the district and throughout the county that already are built with a little bit of investment, not from the ground up, but just a little bit of investment and love can become places where people can get off the streets and safely receive those services. I've spoken with local elected officials who have endorsed me, who are supporting my campaign, who are interested in working with me because we've seen it firsthand at the local level, having to solve these problems. Problems. it's not enough to just say oh here's here's money you know th- we can't just throw money at this problem we need to be strategic we need to be thoughtful and we need to be intentional and in where that money is spent and how it's spent and that's the experience that I'm able to bring to bear um, that differenti- differentiates me from my opponents in this race but I think is really the kind of practical problem solving that people are looking for
1: yeah, absolutely. Long-term, as you said. Thanks for that. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Vic Jorami, and you are listening to my interview with council member Lindsay Horvath, who is also running for the LA County Board of Supervisors. I'm going to skip one question for the sake of time, but I do want to ask okay. you this because, uh, you know, as long as I've known you, you have an exceptional record. Uh, people admire you for... Uh, not uh, on top of being, uh, you know, an elected official and policymaker, but you have uh, an exceptional record in uh, social justice and equality and fighting for uh, the disadvantaged. Going into the LA County Board of Supervisors, do you think you can sort of have that kind of intensity there too?
0: We have to. It's not optional. We must center the people who are most marginalized, who are often forgotten about, and we must put them at the center of our work. That is how we make sure that government serves everyone. Um, We can't leave anybody behind. And and we do that uh, by um, helping community uh, see who's in their community, that, um, that really helping people take care of one another within their own community and providing support and resources um, to community-based solutions that people already trust. You know, we, we have whether it um, has been, as I mentioned, fighting for the LGBTQ community, whether it has been creating with our mayor Pro Tem uh, Sepi Shine the um, social justice task force in our city, uh, and empowering uh, communities of color to have not only a literal seat at the table, but a strong uh, and clear voice in, in advising on policies that we're implementing in the city, um, whether it's you know fighting for women and making sure that women have equal rights, equal pay, equal access. Um, you know, we, we have been at the forefront, the forefront of so many important issues and fights, um, and, and that needs to continue. But what we also need to see is that everyone it needs to be part of these solutions. As I said, the recovery that we are looking at um, in terms of recovering from COVID economically, um, psychologically, you know, in and, and all the ways that we need to recover um, has to include everyone. And so we need to be intentional in that way. And, and I have support from community organizations and partners who reflect the diversity of our district, as I mentioned. So I really believe that, um, that this is not a pie in the sky sort of thing. This is something we can actually do and get done and, and, um, and do so proudly
1: amen uh, my next question seems a little redundant because I think you eloquently explained you've answered it which was going to be why should people vote for you but I think you've uh, really made that clear so I'm going to uh, ask you it'd be my last question is what haven't I asked you what would you like to add uh, or share with uh, people listening right now
0: I my grandmother has been um, uh, someone that I've thought of about a lot in my life. She passed away while I was in college, but she worked two full-time jobs just to make ends meet. Um, Because of that, she uh, really struggled at times, you know, as a single mom, my grandfather passed away early in my dad's life. And so uh, while she was working to take care of four boys, make sure that they, their clothes were washed and she put food on the table she didn't get it all right, and uh, you know they didn't have an idyllic childhood. Um, but she worked hard, and she had to. Um, this was at a time where you know uh, typically a dad went to went to work, a mom stayed home to take care of the family. You know, my grandmother was working two full time jobs, one of which was uh, operating. Um, the police station, my grandfather actually created the radio system uh, that uh, helped, that allowed police cars to talk to each other. Um, and she was the receptionist and operator for that system. And I say that I, t- I talk about my family and I talk about this experience, you know, to show that um, we are, you know, I come from working class roots. Um, you know, we know what it is to struggle um, I'm connected deeply to the issues of, um, you know, of, of working class people and working people in, in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, we fight for everything that we get and, you know, um, people are struggling so much right now. Um, and they just want to know that somebody's hearing them, that somebody believes them and, and is willing to fight for them, that, uh, going to show up for them. And, you know, I, I'm, coming with 15 years of experience doing exactly that and being a gr- grassroots and community organizer even before. This, this is what I love to do is fight for people. And you know I really believe it's a sacred and important thing when people come to you and ask for help. I take that very seriously. And so it, it would be my greatest honor to be of service, to be of help. Um, To people who need it most, to people who are just looking to have a fighting chance and who want to live in a Los Angeles, you know, the Los Angeles that they've always dreamed. Um, And many people come here to pursue their dreams. And I want to help make them a reality for people, whether they've come here as immigrants, whether they've come pursuing a a career in entertainment, or whether they've just come looking for for a new opportunity or protection for who they are. Uh, Whatever brought people here, whatever, uh, however people find themselves in L.A., um, there are so many amazing stories and I just want to live, uplift and empower them through the work and service that I'm able to provide. So I'm going to be a fighter. I'm, a, I'm going to be the hardest working person in this race. Um, but more importantly, uh, the hardest working person for Angelinos uh, once I, I'm able to be in that office.
1: Yes, I, I'll, I'll bet on that. I, I'm sure of it. Before we go, um, how can uh, people reach you? Uh, donate, volunteer, uh, reach your campaign. If you can Thank you very your much. Website.
0: I appreciate that. Yes, you can go to Uh There's uh, information there on uh, our our priority issues. There are ways to. Um, there's a contact uh, opportunity, so you can reach out and let us know you want to be part of the campaign. Um, there is a donate page there if you are so generous and want to invest in our campaign. We need it. Every every little bit helps. We are a grassroots campaign, but we are we're uh, you know slowly but surely getting there, and and we appreciate all of the support and investment people have made into the campaign. Um, And, you know, uh, with everyone's help, we're going to get across this finish line. And uh, I'm really grateful that so many people have seen themselves reflected in our campaign, Um, serving as a council member, serving as a local government official, serving as somebody who just is really about and being of service to community, um, I believe that we have the coalition and the team that is going to speak to people and, and uh, I want them to see how. So please join us, reach out, let us know your priorities, any questions, and I'm, I'm ready to hear from you.
1: Yeah, and uh, if you go to uh, Lindsay's, her website, you'll see all the endorsements. It's very impressive. And uh, lindsayhorvath.com is L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-H-O-R-V-A-T-H.com.
0: That's so right.
1: Good. Just wanted to spell that Lindsay Horvath.com. Lindsay, thank you very much. Um, I'll say good luck, but uh, you know, I don't think you need it. Thanks for uh, we being We definitely on the show. need it.
0: We need luck. We need, we need uh, just good old fashioned hard work and support um, from, and us, uh, from, from the people.
1: <laughs> we'll talk Thanks. again before, before um, the election. I hope.
0: I certainly hope so. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. That was my interview with Councilmember Lindsay Horvath, uh, whom I've had the pleasure of knowing for many years. I've seen her work, her dedication to the city of West Hollywood uh, you know, up close. Uh, and I'm very excited that she is uh, running for LA County Board of Supervisors. Thank you, Councilmember Horvath, for being on the show. Uh, hopefully we'll chat again before the election.
0: The Blunt Post with Vic.
1: Dr. Khachik Muradyan is a lecturer in Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia University. He also serves as co-principal investigator with Professor Paul Pelosian of the Project on Armenian Genocide Denial at the Global Institute for Advanced Studies at the New York University. Dr. Muradyan also holds a PhD in History from the Strassler Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University. Dr. Maradian, uh, you are a lecturer and an expert in uh, the Caucasus, as well as uh, your specialties in uh, Armenian history and region and politics and Georgian. You're a professor at uh, Columbia University, and you also, you are the Caucasus Georgian-Armenian Specialist for the Library of Congress, right? So... Given all of that and your expertise, what is your perspective on the events of 2020? What happened with the uh, attack that Turkey helped Azerbaijan orchestrate on Artsakh?
2: Thank you for the question, for the opportunity. Uh, yeah, I will be speaking here, of course, not in my capacity as uh, a Library of Congress, uh, you know, uh, I mean, Georgian specialist, but. Uh, primarily, of course, uh, as as an observer as well as as a historian of the Armenian genocide and and its legacy. So, in many ways, you will see me conjuring up, uh, bringing uh, examples or or, or citing uh, the historical record as I try to highlight a few aspects of what happened. And uh, perhaps a, a a good place to start would be. Uh, one of the most poignant images from the aftermath of the Artsakh War was one that depicted a small house mounted on a truck driving away. It was an AP photograph and the caption read something like, "Armenian family drives a truck uh, loaded uh, with a small house or something of of that sort. This was in in November, 2020. In many ways, I felt that the photograph captured the affliction of a nation uh, that sees displacement, exile as a permanent staple of of its historic trajectory. So it's it's important to situate uh, the attack on Artsakh within this context and for a very good reason, right? You pointed to the connection between Turkey and Azerbaijan. This was clearly without any qualification, right? A war that was waged by both countries direct participation of Turkey in a number of ways. In a number of ways, Turkey served as the uh, engine of the Azeri war effort uh, in the command center, in the air, on the ground. You know, I'm referring to the Bayraktar drones and F-16s, I'm referring to Syrian mercenaries and in the diplomatic arena. So in that regard, uh, there is no question that this was an attack that uh, was coordinated jointly and it was one that was planned. And uh, this brings me to the timing as well. Uh, you know, d- the COVID pandemic actually was an important uh, element here as well, because one of the things that happened is that, uh, you know, the pandemic was used as a cover at a time when the world was busy fighting a pandemic And in fact, at a time when the UN had called for a ceasefire, a global ceasefire, right? You have Azerbaijan launching this war on on Artsakh. And uh, so also from the Armenian perspective, it's important to note that in many ways, uh, it should not come as a surprise that when this war was launched with direct Turkish support, this was seen by many Armenians as a war of extermination. And its, its aftermath has been a traumatic ordeal, this kind of frantic scramble for answers and accountability, anxiety uh, about an uncertain future for Armenia, and of course, in particular, for Artsakh. So in many uh, regards, this, th- th- this war is a turning point in the Caucasus, both from the perspective of uh, the relations between the countries in the region, from the perspective of uh, appending right, uh, many principles and notions around which there is a certain sense of international acceptance and agreement. And in terms of their direct threats against the Armenian people, that is impossible to see and explore and think about without looking at the longer historical context of violence, destruction, Cultural and
1: This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Dr. Khachik Muradyan, who is a lecturer at Columbia University. Uh, it's interesting. You, you brought up something that uh, leads me. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question. You talked about extermination and how uh, Armenians saw this as another attempt of extermination and such. Do you think this was an attempt at what would what would
2: be called a genocide or considered a genocide? So, in, I I look at this from the following perspective, right? The, the intention of uh, the Azeri authorities was the ethnic cleansing of Artsakh. It's very clear. It the intention was to clear that territory of its indigenous Armenian population. Isn't that and genocide? That, I do see this as a long. Uh, as part of a long policy of attacking the Armenian uh, communities, Armenian culture and heritage that would have been impossible in a context where you do not have Armenian genocide denial, which is a continuation of the Armenian genocide, right? If you think about it, it is unfathomable for Turkey that had it recognized the Armenian genocide and confronted it and made reparations, it would have been unfathomable for it to play the kind of role that it has played during this conflict, during this war. So, in many ways, uh, this is very much uh, falls this very much falls under the long shadow cast by genocide. Absolutely, no doubt about that. But was this particular attack in its scope? Uh, uh, you know, term genocide. I would hesitate to use that term for for it, but it uh, fully falls under, uh, you know, that, that as I said, that long shadow cast by genocide, and uh, the uh, the policy of erasure of Armenian cultural heritage itself is part of the ongoing cultural genocide uh, that uh, has been a staple of, you know, Turkish uh, policy. Uh, whether it's destruction or neglect over the past century. And it has also been a staple of unfortunately Azerbaijani policy over the past decades. Thank you
1: for that. So now let's go to, you did mention COVID-19 as being a, a very significant reason why uh, there was so much chaos happening in the world and the this attack didn't get the attention that it deserved. However, when you look at uh, agencies and organizations worldwide, uh, whose job it is to look at it, no matter what's happening. uh, Aside from the obvious, why do you think there was such a deafening silence from uh, United Nations, European Union, Council of Europe, OSCE, uh, you know, CSTO and others?
2: Uh, thank you for the question. You know, one of the things that, again, from the perspective of Armenians, uh, many of us watching this, following this every day, was, as you mentioned, this deafening silence, right? And in many ways, uh, it's it's important to note a couple of elements here. Uh, one of the unfortunate, and many of these elements, in fact, uh, are not new, and were not new as the war was happening. These, this is the product of a particular kind of language, of Two-sidedism. This is a product of a kind of discourse that continually asks both sides to be measured, to remain, you know, to be, uh, to not resort to violence, to not attack civilians. This kind of two-sidedism was very much a staple of the language used in uh, the region for over the past decades. And it is typically part of the language that is used in a context where you have negotiations and there's this effort by many bodies to essentially not upset one side or the other. But ultimately, it uh, it it failed once again. That discourse actually led to yet another failure in in, a, in timely uh, you know humanitarian ceasefires, in attempts to put an end to the fighting and uh, the 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 horrendous loss of life. And in many ways, I think uh, much of the of what we saw in terms of silence and two-sidedism, in fact, was precipitated by the decades that preceded that. But ultimately, one of the points that I would like to emphasize here is the following. This is, and and this is, in fact, this has always been been true, unfortunately, over the past uh, decades. Uh, Having the kind of uh, reliance, putting our, uh, you know, hopes on, you know, some kind of external Power and force to actually come in and sweep in and and, and salvage a particular situation, right, is is one that I do not personally believe in. I think that it's important at its best, at their best, uh, at our best, we have uh, as Armenians stood up whenever we are confronted by major challenges and taken action and taken responsibility for our actions. Just think about the Armenian genocide and its immediate aftermath, right? Th- that was the, the you know, single most horrendous experience in the history of the Armenian nation with uh, a million and a half Armenians killed, uh, an entire the loss of an entire homeland and, and, and cultural heritage, mass theft, right? And then just a few years after that, right? you have an Armenian Republic being born, you have Armenian communities rebuilding and reconstituting themselves around the world. And then you have the you know, the thriving uh, reality of, uh, you know, globally of, of Armenian life today. So in many ways, I think that is testament, first and foremost, to that kind of resilience, to that kind of, uh, you know, against all odds. And no matter how much there is, intervention there is or not, uh, that the resilience and the willingness of Armenians to stand back on their feet. And that is how I see this. You know, one of the, in the darkest moments of the Armenian genocide, and in the darkest corners of the Armenian genocide, which is Derizor, and and this is the area that I study in my work, right, you have Armenians organizing on their own. This is a place where missionaries cannot access, diplomats cannot access, and Armenians are left to their own uh, devices and and they're being massacred. Even in circumstances such as that, completely abandoned by the world, right? Armenians managed, some Armenians at least, to survive and then ultimately to rebuild. And I do see this as as, as a good uh, source of inspiration, uh, moving ahead. In many ways, when we look at uh, the past couple of years, there is no question again that it is, since the Armenian genocide, perhaps the greatest uh, you know, horror that befell the Armenian nation. In terms of, you know, uh, I'm not just talking about loss of land, I'm talking about loss of life and culture and the trauma of the past couple of years. And, uh, and, and the scars that it has left uh, on Armenians around the globe. And of course, immediately on the Armenians of Artsakh and Armenia. And ultimately, I try to look at that situation from, from this kind of perspective, where I know that it was not the first time that we were left alone. And it was it's not going to be the first time when we stand back up and try to define, in our own terms, a different kind of future for our people. I like that. Self-reliance, independence. Yes. And uh,
1: yeah, it's a really good, positive uh, message. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Dr. Khachik Muradyan, who is a lecturer at Columbia University. So let's go to with everything and being in flux, sort of in turmoil and a little bit of chaos. What what do you think is the end game for Azerbaijan and Turkey as we are now?
2: You know, there uh Azerbaijan's and Turkey's policy is, and we don't really need to speculate much because they, you know, it's it's very clearly articulated in statements by the Turkish government, in statements by the uh, by the government of Azerbaijan. It's clearly articulated as, you know, these are, you know, they're engaged in attempts to gain maximum concessions from Armenia in a time where Armenia is at a particularly vulnerable situation. This is the context of the constant refrain about a corridor connecting Turkey uh, uh, with uh, connecting, sorry, Nahecevan with Azerbaijan proper. Uh, It's part of the constant uh, discourse around different kinds of preconditions that are being advanced put forth uh, in the context of a conversation around armenian turkish normalization and in many ways uh, the uh, the idea is again you know to uh, have an armenia that essentially is at its weakest and keep it in that situation for as long as possible in order to enshrine a number of major uh, uh, transformations in the region. One being the status of Artsakh, right? Uh, the effort is the push is to essentially uh, remove that issue from, uh, uh, from the, the agenda in general. The second is the conversation on the corridor. And the third is through the normalization conversations, essentially neutralize any kind of role that the Republic of Armenia can play in a number of arenas, not just in Artsakh where its role has been already reduced significantly, but also on issues like genocide recognition, uh, globally, etc. So, so this is this is the reality where where we are today. And again, uh, there is not much that we can do in terms of changing the policies, uh, plans, and designs of other governments, right? these governments are going to be pursuing what they deem as their interest, right? They're not going to be you know, pursuing any kind of uh, policy that they view as just the, the right thing to do. And ultimately, uh, it is up to us, right, to decide the ways in which we would like to tackle these challenges uh, in a situation where, again, we are in a place that's extremely vulnerable, uh, immediately having come out of, just having come out of uh, war and defeat uh, at a time when uh, the government in Armenia is weak at a time when uh, there is, there, you know, there are, uh, you know, within Armenia, domestic politics is not at its best. The opposition is weak as well. And, and in many ways, uh, the onus is on us to figure, to think about uh, what is the next chapter that we are, we want to imagine and we want to see happen. And uh, and in many ways, I I feel that uh, it has been a curse of, uh, uh, you know, on on the Armenian nation to always try to see itself, try to find itself, uh, to struggle to find ways of coming out of that long shadow of the genocide. And here we are today, more than a a century after the genocide. In, in, in a very similar spot, where our main challenge is to figure out a way of emerging from under this shadow, uh, caught between uh, this uh, this joint push by Turkey and Azerbaijan, as I said, to you know to uh, squeeze as much as possible
1: out of Armenia and Armenia. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Dr. Khachik Muradian, who is a lecturer at Columbia University. So what does that look like? What, what, What do we do? Where are we now? What do we do? How do we move forward to being the solution? I think that's what you're emphasizing. Let's be in the solution not get stuck in the problem
2: and the trauma of what happened? It's, it's of course a very difficult question, right? And uh, I wish there were uh, some, you know, a, a prescription that could be provided a way out of this in, in, in that sense. But uh, perhaps, uh, you know, the best, again, that we can think about and we can hope for is one that is a, lo- a relatively longer term kind of approach to, to some of these issues. Ultimately, uh, disasters, defeats, catastrophes are happen, are precipitated over a long period of time. The war itself may have lasted a few months or a few weeks, right? But uh, it was a long time in the making. This was a war that was being uh, essentially prepared for by Azerbaijan since the first day following ceasefire and its defeat, right? This was a war that has been, uh, you know, is, has been in the works and uh, Turkish assistance and support to Azerbaijan has been in the works again since then. The blockading and uh, closing of the army border, uh, the, the rhetoric that's coming out of Ankara, etc., over the past several decades is very much testament to this, right? So much of this, the problems have been precipitated over a long period of time and there's no way that the solution is going to be something that's going to happen over a short period of time but ultimately i think uh, the realization that our actions with every moment and second right is actually either helping support or uh, is a lost opportunity we're either in, in our actions helping support peaceful, strong resolution and self-determination for the Armenian people of Artsa, or we're missing an opportunity. The moment we realize that, right? Uh, th- I believe that is the beginning of this kind of long journey into a different kind of future. I think ultimately we are, we, uh, over and over again, we find ourselves in a place where we suddenly are complacent, right? It's there, it's always going to be there, and we put our guard down. In, uh, I I do believe that, uh, again, the day after Armenian defeat, the best way forward would be to actually think about the fact that, cumulatively, our efforts should be uh, geared towards strengthening and supporting and rebuilding uh, Armenia and Artsakh and trying to push an inch towards a just resolution for this issue uh, without fail, without complacency, because that is on the long-term, what counts and what matters.
1: Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So um, just finally, is there anything you'd like to add? Maybe a question I should have asked you, but didn't?
2: I I don't think of uh, anything in particular. Uh, Perhaps I would would give uh, an example or a or point again, going back to what I do best, which is, uh, which is history. You know, we, we, often, th- we often think about historic, historic events in the past, right, as, uh, as frozen, right? Things happened, started and ended at a given time, and there was a particular outcome. This is how we think about the genocide, this is how we think about, you know, the establishment of the First Republic, This is how we think about the Soviet period, and in general, right? That's how we think about history. For people who are living, who were living in that period, right? None of this was given. None of this was final. Every step of the way, they were uh, often against all odds, helping shape what eventually became known as history. Right? Sure. And today we are in very much in a similar situation. You are, you are an activist and you know this. You have struggled on several causes that just a decade or two ago would have been unfathomable, the kind of achievements that we have made over the past couple of decades. And, and ultimately, the shape we give to the present is what, in the future, is going to be called history. So we are, through our actions, we are through our engagement, we are through our commitment to social justice and struggles for justice, are helping shape that. Or by remaining on the sidelines, essentially saying, you know what? I'm out. I'll wait and see what happens in the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that that I feel is at the at the core of what we perhaps should think about as we look ahead, our ability to the fact that we are shaping history one way or the other by being actively involved or by sitting on the margins.
1: That was perfect because you gave uh, great sound bites for, my film is in nine chapters and I wanted, I don't want to end it on a very depressing note, um, but you know, still in reality, but I want to have some hope, <laughs> some solution based. And my last chapter is a wrap up and a wrap up is more of where do we go from here? Let's yeah. let's explore solutions and get um, get out of our way. So that's uh, those are really great things. Thank you, uh-huh. Hachik. Bye bye. That was my interview with uh, Dr. Hachik Moradian from Columbia University, who was also very uh, generous and and gracious to uh, give me a, a very comprehensive interview for the. Documentary feature film that I'm working on called Motherland about the 2020 attack uh, by Azerbaijan and Turkey on the Armenians of Artsakh. Uh, uh, just this horrendous thing that hasn't really ended. It's an ongoing uh, humanitarian crisis, and uh, Dr. Maradian. Uh, is uh, very well-versed, uh, to say the least, on the matter. So I'm very grateful for that. Uh, thank you, Dr. Maradian, and I hope to chat with you again soon. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Vic at
2: v-i-c-g-e-r-a-m-i thank you the blunt post with vic